Hazel decreed Sophocles' play Antigone, the most magnificent and satisfying work of art of this kind. While writing over decades on diverse topics, such as religion, politics, and family life, as well as drama, Hegel repeatedly turned to the Antigone as a source of meaning. At times, he treated Antigone as a living person rather than a character because he thought that she, as the epitome of womankind, ought to be a model for feminine life. We will consider two lines of thought in Hegel's work on Antigone. First, the dramatic meaning, discussed primarily in the Phenomenology of Spirit of 1807, and the lectures on aesthetics, given in 1823, 1826, and 1828-29. The second line is the ethical or political meaning, found in the Phenomenology and the Philosophy of Rights, 1821. These two themes, the dramatic and ethical, are bound together by an underlying logic. I will show that despite the strength of his dramatic reading, Hegel's comprehensive interpretation fails because his ethical reading contradicts the inner workings of the play. My disagreement with Hegel's interpretation stems from his analysis of the interdependence of public and private life. Hegel examines this in terms of two human relationships, brother-sister and husband-wife. In each case, the man has an independent sense of self while the woman does not. My first objection is that Hegel's assumption that Antigone should remain a static model for woman is not dialectical. That is, it assumes no alteration in consciousness for a woman within a changing context. I think that Antigone achieves a sense of individuality, however limited, by virtue of her action as an unmarried woman, not merely as Polynices' sister. Her action begins as service for another, but ends as a service for herself. My second objection is that Hegel applies modern concepts of state and civil society to Sophoclean characters. The ahistorical Antigone is an incongruent partner for a 19th century spouse. It is difficult to maintain that she is a complement for a highly self-conscious person if she remains naturally unreflective. Let me summarize the plot. As you recall, the tragedy takes place against the background of the deeds of Oedipus, who unwittingly killed his father and married his mother. Their offspring included two sons, Eteocles and Polynices, and two daughters, Ismene and our heroine, Antigone. The brothers killed each other in a fight over the throne of Thebes, which is then taken by their maternal uncle, Creon. Polynices' body is to remain unburied because Creon considered him a traitor. Antigone is caught, burying Polynices. She is sentenced to be buried alive and hangs herself in the tomb. Meanwhile, the seer Tiresias warns Creon of the damage done to the state by these unnatural events, but it's too late to prevent the death of Creon's wife 
and son Haman, who had been betrothed to Antigone. Hegel defines drama as, quote, the presentation to our minds and imagination of actual human actions and affairs, and therefore of persons expressing their actions in words. A dramatic action rests entirely on collisions of circumstances, passions, and characters, and leads therefore to actions and then to the reactions which in turn necessitate a resolution of the conflict." End quote. There is a dynamic quality to a good drama as the inevitable co collision between opposed characters is anticipated and endured. What makes Antigone a good play in a dramatic sense is the beauty and power of the class and its resolution. We will examine this collision as it appears in the plot and characterization. Collisions depend first upon the plot, which is the primary structure within which dramatic movement takes place. Creon's edict, edict forbidding the burial of Polynices, is the presupposition of the conflict. In itself, it is seemingly neutral command aimed at those who would challenge order in the polis. However, we hear about this command from Antigone in the first scene of the play. Coming from this source, the edict is no longer neutral. It has taken on an ominous cast. The tragedy is stated from this beginning as Antigone neglects the warnings of her sister and strives to counter what she sees as a violation of a higher divine order. Yet one is aware that it is not that simple. As daughter of Oedipus, Antigone must say, there's nothing grievous, nothing free from doom, not shameful, not dishonored, I've not seen. She is both innocent and guilty of the crime she inherits. Antigone has a responsibility towards the polis as the remnant of its ruling house and a conflicting duty to her dead brother. Creon is in a similar position as both Antigone's uncle and as ruler of Thebes. Thus the situation is full of potential for collision between them and ultimately among their several duties. How can one remain loyal to the Polish and the family in circumstances like these? The question is a serious one, but one that Antigone does not need to ask. She feels the compelling claim of the underworld which grounds her life. The gods of departed ancestors, of her father, mother, and brothers, confirm her desire to act. She has no doubt that her action is consonant with her determinant character and with the will of the gods. Since Antigone has the power to assert the primacy of her family, she, rather than Ismene, is the heroine of this play. Ismene pleads with Antigone to remember that women should not force law or fight with men. Antigone will not compromise her duty to the underworld and answers harshly 
that she will bury Polynices despite the consequences. Antigone dares the crime of piety, and with the act of pouring earth over the body of her brother, the play is set into motion and being. Her action has a specific aim and expected consequences that reveal the greatness of Antigone's character. She is able to face death alone just as she is coming into womanhood, abandoning her wedding plans and hopes. At the same time, the action advances the plot because it demands a reaction. Creon's expectation of a male traitor collides with the calm, knowing demeanor of the violator standing before him. His imagination is more narrow than Antigone's, since he can envision only profit as a motive for disobedience. He is confounded by an action based on love. Their exchange defines the grounds of their differences. One is male, the other female. One speaks of crime, the other of holiness. Creon, you are not ashamed to think alone? Antigone, no, I am not ashamed. When was it shame to serve the children of my mother's womb? They are clearly opposed, even in their ideas, about what is proper for a woman to do. Ismene's course is proper, yet unsatisfying. Communal values and customs which guide everyday life do not set out an obvious solution to this conflict. The antagonists hold contradicting opinions about the meanings of crime and piety. Antigone attempts to find a middle way. She thinks independently on behalf of her family. She acts unwomanly and illegally out of a woman's loyalty to her familial God. Hegel stresses the importance of action in tragic drama for, quote, with action, a man steps actively into concrete reality where forthwith the most general matters are condensed and confined in a particular phenomenon. Stepping into concrete reality confirms Antigone as one who wills to be who she is. At the same time, Antigone enables the divine to manifest itself through her. The gods of the underworld are given concreteness by her willingness to obey them without questioning the source of the divine laws. Consequently, the most general spiritual substance appears within a particular visible event. We do not hear soliloquies of doubt as in Hamlet, for Antigone's action comes naturally to her. Hegel thinks that the spiritual element in Antigone's act is perfectly married and reconciled with the equally justified external aspect, that is, with what is seen on stage. This tragedy is compelling precisely because what is seen on stage are self-reliant characters, each acting out of a pathos which gives him or her a driving essential power. Each character feels his or her ethical stance 
to be internally justified and fully binding. Their views are expressed in solid and cultivated objective language rather than in elaborate rhetoric, for their eloquence is in line with their direct action. Only that which is essential to the true character of Antigone is stated. We know very little about her beyond her terrible lineage. Antigone defines herself at the outset. For me, the doer, death is death. This statement reverberates throughout the whole play as Antigone proves herself to be a doer and faces the horror of live burial as her punishment. Creon, too, experiences the devastating consequences of his actions as his niece, son, and wife die in rapid succession. These deaths are dramatically necessary to restore the rights of the gods. Death here is a negation or canceling of the negation which set the play into motion, the burial of Polynices. The opposition of Creon and Antigone is regarded against the background of the chorus. The choral speeches represent the community's views, alternately commenting on the characters' decisions and placing those decisions in their proper reference to the gods. Hegel thinks the chorus is important as a surrounding universal context for the action, even though it is powerless and afraid of the contradictory gods. The chorus believes that fate destroys people despite their merit, and therefore must conclude any greatness in human life brings doom. It is sympathetic towards Antigone, but the chorus does not offer to help her. The undercover talk in the town remains undercover because the chorus lacks the power of the negative. This power causes changes to occur by negating that which is. Antigone participates in the movement of negativity when she challenges Creon's law. In the Phenomenology of Spirit, Hegel states that the chorus, quote, is conscious only of a paralyzing terror of this movement, of equally helpless pity, and, at the end of it all, the empty repose of submission to necessity, whose work is understood neither as the necessary deed of the character, nor as the action of spirit within itself. There are three interpretations of this dialectical movement. The chorus sees the hand of fate, which strikes down even the bravest heroine. Antigone interprets that fate as her own work and is therefore willing to sustain the negative, to hold with the moral rightness of her deed throughout the play. The third interpretation, held by Hegel, is that we are witnessing the activity of spirit. Spirit, which is difficult to define since it is continually evolving, is here the implicit divinity acting through the character. Spirit appears explicitly as the frame in which their actions have meaning. 
this frame is language. The spirit is simultaneously in the foreground and the background of the tragedy. Spirit joins the three interpretations together. What happens in the play is equally the work of fate, Antigone's will, and the appearance of its own power. Only from this truly universal perspective can these be compatible. The chorus provides a general context for the action, but its view is bound to the past. It sees the one-sidedness of Antigone's position, for its admiration is mixed with criticism of her neglect of Zeus' authority. Creon, too, comes in for support and criticism by the chorus. First, he is praised for upholding law in the daylight world of Zeus, but the fearful chorus murmurs against him when they consider the dark fate of Oedipus' house. Creon is is as inflexible as Antigone. He will not listen to his son, Haman, nor consider the sentiment of the community when he banishes Antigone to her unusual bridal chamber. He claims that this live burial will protect him from direct responsibility for Antigone's death, but we know that such a technical reading of the law will not satisfy the underworld. The one-sided action of Antigone cannot exist harmoniously with the equally one-sided reaction of Creon. The play turns on the recognition that these two powers are incomplete without each other. Thus, to achieve equilibrium, Antigone and Creon are destroyed by their complements, which are intrinsic to their own actual being. The resolution of the opposition between man and woman is echoed in the union of upper and lower divinities. Thus, the powers animating action, which struggle to destroy each other, are reconciled at last. Hegel claims, quote, Only with such a conclusion can the necessity of what happens to the individuals appear as actual rationality, and only then can our hearts be morally at peace. Shattered by the fate of the heroes, but reconciled fundamentally." There are two components to this reconciliation. We must accept the fate of the heroes as rational, and we must feel morally at peace. We come to understand Antigone's death only if we see her initial position as blind towards the claims of public life. Our feeling of peace arises from our appreciation of her bravery set against the power of an irrational faith. She withstood great obstacles and has given us a sense of the justice of her cause. Aristotle's discussion of catharsis in the Poetics is helpful here. Catharsis is the pleasurable release of tension following pity and fear. Pity, Aristotle claims, concerns the undeserved, while fear concerns the similar. This play points in two directions, to the past and to the future. 
when it points to the past, Antigone's demise is undeserved and therefore pitiable. She is struck down by fate while demonstrating her noble character. She is consistent in her loyalty to the underworld and therefore suffers rather than learns. Ultimately, however, we do not pity her as we might pity the helpless Ismene. The pity for Antigone cancels itself when we see her take responsibility for action. Since she courageously wills her fate, we come to realize that her death is best. The same character that brought her to an undeserved punishment can now be seen as blameworthy. From the opening scene of the play, Antigone displays the hot mind over chilly things that marks her as the daughter of Oedipus. Our fear that she will act like her father, listening to no one as she draws her fate upon her head, heightens the tension of the conflict with Creon. This fear is relieved only when her death extinguishes the possibility of future repetition of the shameful act of Oedipus' house. Hegel accepts Aristotle's explanation of pity and fear, yet stresses that in order to be most compelling, the object evoking these emotions ought to be the power of spirit. By this Hegel means, that our feelings ought not to be directed only to finite, limited objects, such as the pity that one of Jane Austen's characters might feel for a young woman who has no dancing partner. This kind of sympathy degrades the sufferer to a helpless victim of sad circumstances. A deeper kind of pity is felt for the unwed Antigone which acknowledges the profound source of her pain. At the same time, we must acknowledge the rights of the polis, which also displays the divine substance. The catharsis that alleviates pity and fear allows that fact to stand forth. The same substance, which showed itself in Antigone's one-sided action, appears in harmony with itself when she is struck down. Tragedy thus is the conflict and resolution of partial expression of spirit. Its power is exercised both through and upon the heroine of this play. By focusing on the collision between Creon and Antigone and the difficult necessity of its resolution, Hegel recognizes the dramatic strength of the play. For Hegel, the question, what makes this a good drama, must be answered in terms of dialectical movement through opposition. Plot and characters work together to achieve a sense of vitality and completeness in this movement. My objections arise when we turn to the ethical dimension of Antigone, or the moral of this story. 
This is the second part of my lecture. Hegel's interpretation in the phenomenology of spirit is based on the primacy of the brother-sister relationship in which the sister's reality is mediated by the brother. In the philosophy of right, the stress is laid upon the husband-wife relationship. This difference undermines Hegel's assumption that women lack self-consciousness even when they freely enter the agreement of marriage. Hegel's attempt to apply modern social structures to a Greek play fails, as does his view of woman as natural and unchanged Philosophically's time. We will review the argument in the phenomenology first and then consider the problem in light of the philosophy of right. Hegel's discussion of Antigone in the, philosophy, in the phenomenology of spirit comes under the heading The True Spirit, the Ethical Order. According to Hegel, the play is an example of the way true spirit makes its appearance after a series of inadequate attempts. Now spirit is present in an unmediated form as the ethos of a people. Spirit or mind is the people. Spirit is conscious, that is, able to make distinctions, but not yet self-conscious. Thus it is manifest in custom and habit rather than in a rational decision-making process like the application of Kant's categorical imperative. At this stage, spirit is split into content and consciousness. The content is the folk, the entire community. Actual consciousness is found in individual citizens. The union of their subjective wills with the objective order ushers in the specifically ethical life of spirit. Ethical life, ethical spirit is the good become alive embodied in human action. Natural activities give way to a higher, second nature, developed through the habitual exercise of the duties appropriate to one's station in the community. This results in a split in the content or substance of ethical spirit, which polarizes into two realms. The first realm is the world of women, a community that is dedicated to the needs of particular family members, living and dead. The second is the world of men, which is located in the polis, a community that raises male consciousness to universal concerns such as law. The heart of Sophocles' play is the conflict between male and female worlds. This conflict is inevitable since people really belong to both spheres and cannot live without one another. The family is a distinctly feminine world for it is women who bear and educate children care for blind fathers like Oedipus, and carry out the final rites for relatives who have died. The ethical substance is here at its most immediate, close to nature and the world beyond this life. 
Its gods are those of the underworld and of the hearth, and its law gives primacy to blood relatives. Hegel describes family life as a harmonious one because the, the members together constitute an individual family. They are not differentiated, nor do they display a struggle for recognition which might lead to self-consciousness. One can think of parents, children, uncles and grandparents as internal organs of a larger familial organism. Woman, especially, is defined as being for another because her life is dedicated to the health and perpetuation of this organism. Although she is dependent by nature, woman turns the givenness of her sex into an ethical ground. Her being as part of a family does not require self-conscious action in order to obey the divine law. Woman endows natural activities with a spiritual significance by being a vehicle for mediation. Working through her, quote, the God's unwritten and unfailing laws always live and no one knows their origin in time, Nature's sensuous immediacy is canceled in this process. All living things are supposed to grow naturally, but a male child is trained for a non-natural end. His mother educates him for a self-conscious future as a citizen of the city. By becoming a citizen, her son outgrows her. His new life requires a negation of the immediacy of home life. With this, the mother has fulfilled her task. The family whole is broken open as the son makes the transition to the second realm, the world of men. The young man who enters adult life finds his actual being as an individual. His self-sufficiency in comparison with his family is limited by his participation in the city. His needs and ideas are shared by other citizens and find their fulfillment in the law. Law alters the relation to natural desires by introducing a universal element. The family, for instance, has been shown to be grounded in consanguinity and structures in an organic way. The family under law, as signified by marriage rights, is based on a contract between two people of different blood who henceforth act as if they are of the same blood. Thus the city substitutes conventional bonds between people for the irrational ones of nature. Ethical spirit is conscious of itself and actual in the offspring of this marriage relationship. Between them, man and woman share the substance of the ethical spirit. This substance shows itself as a natural sexual difference which they raise to a universal status by accepting their duties established by convention. Man is the guardian of the state and respects human laws 
Woman is the guardian of the home and respects the laws of subterranean divinity. The movement of man from private to public life is the development of self-conscious spirit. Hegel concludes, neither of the two is by itself absolutely valid. Human law proceeds in its living process from the divine. The law, valid on earth, from that of the netherworld, the conscious from the unconscious, mediation from immediacy, and equally returns whence it came. A dynamic equilibrium is maintained between these complementary worlds. However, there remains a final task for a woman to do. This is to prepare for the return of man to the immediate realm of nature upon his death. Although the major portion of his life may be spent in the public sphere, at its end he comes home. Woman as mother, wife, or sister transforms the natural process of decay into a spiritual one. This change occurs as she gives death a religious meaning. Antigone negates the image of a rich, sweet sight for the hungry birds beholding as she pours earth over the body and says the ritual prayers. The dead person does not return to the particular phase of his childhood. Rather, his rest is as a completed being for itself, marked by simple universality. Her brother has achieved a stable being. Polynices has become an ancestor. The family is preserved after all in the memory of those who respect their forefathers. Woman's primary ethical action, preservation of the family, therefore concerns the dead rather than the living. It is necessary for Antigone to bury Polynices, both to secure the family organism and to confirm her identity as his sister. Although woman is unselfconscious in her being for her family, as sister, she has a sense of ethical substance through her brother. Hegel neglects entirely the sister-to-sister relationship between Antigone and Ismene. A brother is a bridge to the outside world because he can act as an individual as well as a family member. Hegel claims that unlike other relations between men and women, there is little or no sexual attraction between brothers and sisters. They are free individualities in regard to each other. Even if this claim is denied by experience, Hegel's view stresses that the natural bond of consanguinity has a higher value to woman than the complementary tie between husband and wife. This value transcends its physical origin because it is attached to an awareness of individual selfhood. Hegel states, the feminine in the form of the sister has the highest intuitive awareness of what is ethical. 
he does not attain to consciousness of it or to the objective existence of it because the law of the family is an implicit inner essence which is not exposed to the daylight of consciousness but remains an inner feeling and the divine element that is exempt from an existence in the real world. Since the real world belongs to men, Antigone's vicarious life is essentially linked to her brother's existence. Perhaps Hegel's interpretation of the source of Antigone's sense of self can make sense out of her strange speech as she is led to her death. She begins, O tomb, O marriage chamber, hollowed out house that will watch forever where I go, to my own people who are mostly there. Persephone has taken them to her. Antigone likens the tomb with the marriage chamber to stress that her loyalty remains with her birth family. She dies unwed because as she laments, referring to Polynices, in your death you destroy my life. She has no life left to give to Haman or to future children. Since marriage is within the province of the state, in this speech, Antigone asserts that she would not violate its rights if a husband or child died under similar conditions. Antigone knows the limits and source of her power and remains within these. Or does she? Is her choice really right? One must ask these questions because of the way in which Antigone carried out her duties. At first, no one knew who buried Polynices. The doer left no sign, but the dust covering the body was apparently sufficient to turn the curse. Antigone appeared again in broad daylight with the sharp and bitter cry of a bitter bird to renew the earthen covering. This time she was captured, calmly admitted her transgression, and came face to face with Creon. Why did she perform this action twice? Hegel would not claim that Antigone was trying to be a martyr or was deliberately trying to undermine the stability of the polis. Rather, Antigone needed to make her deed known in order to establish that it was not due to fate or nature or any other external cause. She chose to accept responsibility for the act, to vindicate her brother, and to bring him to the gates of the underworld in his universal aspect. In Hegelian terms, she showed the spiritual meaning in the seemingly uncontrollable event of death. But she could do this only by transgressing the boundaries of her feminine self. She took on some of the rebellious nature of Polynices to act for him and implicitly to act for herself as well. It is my view that by doing this, Antigone demonstrated a new way to be a woman.
Antigone has come to a sense of her own integrity, her being for self, as she steps into the public sphere. Since the significant members of her family are dead, Antigone is her family. Suddenly, she appears as an individual. No longer a passive vehicle of the divine, she mediates the upper world for her family. Antigone is fully conscious that her public act is both criminal and holy. Although Hegel does not think that women exert dialectical power in the public realm, he praises Antigone as a heroine greater than Oedipus in her consciousness of the double meaning of her deeds. When Antigone moves away from the natural feminine role to engage in a forceful debate with Creon, he is visibly disturbed by what he sees as a subversion of his manhood as well as of the state. I am no man, and she the man instead. Antigone asserts a new power in the political world by bringing the vocabulary of love to bear on legal relationships. This criteria for judging the worth of a law is not appropriate generally. However, at this moment, it reveals Creon's arrogation of power to himself. He mistook law for justice and the polis for his possession. Antigone's challenge opens up the seriousness of this mistake. Human justice, like self-consciousness, is the result of intellectual and political effort. The struggle to make the concept of justice actual is accomplished in a specific historical context. In the play, Creon acts as if the universal powers at work must bow to his personal concerns. Further, he ignores the crucial foundation of the polis in the family by slighting proper burial rights for Polynices and his sister. Thus neither Zeus nor the underworld deities receive their due. Antigone's full consciousness of her deeds and her willingness to appear in public to claim her guilt is likewise undermining the balance of universal powers. Ethically as well as dramatically, the play requires the destruction of Antigone and Creon. Hegel's position in the phenomenology of spirit is that the duality of male and female, of polis and family, is universal and unchanging. There is neither dialectical sublation of one into the other, nor a higher synthesis. Thus the resolution of the conflict restores the previous balance of powers. Hegel does not see Antigone as a character who is both female and male, political on behalf of her family and herself. I think that there is an unnecessary rigidity in his interpretation, but one that is further complicated in the philosophy of right. Hegel discusses Antigone in the philosophy of right in a section titled Ethical Life, which is divided into three parts. 
the family, civil society, and the state. The family, of course, is Antigone's domain, but it must also be viewed as the immediate moment in a dialectical movement culminating in the state. It is this movement which puts the life into ethical life. However, actual freedom exists only as an individual's exercise of duty within the boundaries of one or other of these communities. Hegel explains that the dialectical interaction of these communities has as its end concrete ethical spirit, a union of the universal and the particular that is exhibited in freedom. He states in paragraph 257, the state is the actuality of the ethical idea. The state exists immediately in custom, immediately in individual self-consciousness, knowledge, and activity, while self-consciousness, in virtue of its sentiment towards the state, finds in the state its substantive freedom. Notice the structure of logical syllogism apparent in this quotation. The state exists immediately in custom, that is, in the universal habitual activity you saw in family life. Further, the state exists immediately in individual self-consciousness, that is, in the activity of the adult man who acts as a particular individual in his social world. Hegel distinguishes two shapes for modern social life, civil society and the state, where previously there had been a unity in the polis. Thus, in a schematic way, one can determine the three premises of the syllogism. The universal premise in the family, the particular premise in civil society, and the individual conclusion, which is also the middle term uniting the others in the state. The state is the conclusion of this living syllogism because it knowingly enacts a legal system of duties and rights that makes freedom possible given the interests of the other parts of the community. Let us look more closely at the dialectical unfolding of this syllogism. The family under consideration in the philosophy of rights is both natural and artificial. It is natural as the union of the sexes for the immediate goal of perpetuation of the species. This is an external tie that is made internal by the artificiality of the wedding rites. To their promise, the sensual aspect, that is, the tangible side of the relationship, is subordinated to the unchanging ethical substance. Further, the spouse's natural attachment to their original families is overcome by the transformation inherent in two become one flesh. Thus it is important in Hegel's argument that the man and woman have no close blood relations. The substance of this new family is love, a felt unity of an ethical kind. This unity is felt rather than thought, so it remains on an immediate level. This unity is ethical, that is, the good become alive 
because it is founded on a rational ground. The implicit rational content of marriage becomes explicit in property and, most importantly, in offspring. Children have the potential to be free and through education can fulfill that potential, inheriting property and establishing their own procreative families. The transition to civil society is caused by this multiplication of families. The substantial unity of the birth family is lost in this new moment of particularity. Civil society, as the second premise of Hegel's ethical syllogism, exhibits the splitting apart of needs and rights. On the one side, private needs and desires concerning property bring people into conflict. Universal principles seem absent. However, it appears as the necessity which derives men to form social ties in order to satisfy private interests. The interdependence of one with all is still an abstract universality, for within the association, the universal and the particular are related but not synthesized. Members have great differences of wealth and therefore of freedom. Property confers freedom upon its owner, and this freedom can be used to accumulate property. Desire for more property can feed the system of needs and further widen the gap between rich and poor. On the other hand, this abstract freedom can generate the right property through the establishment of a legal system designed to protect this right. Under this system, Hegel claims, a particular person thinks of men as persons endowed with rights. Quote, a man counts as a man in virtue of his manhood alone, not because he is a Jew, Catholic, Protestant, German, Italian, etc. End quote. Thus the rule of custom, grounded on the arbitrary way we do things, is changed by the thoughtful positing of laws valid universally. When customs themselves are written down and promulgated, the element of thought, however vague and indeterminate previously, become clear in them. Needs and rights are on one level concerned with the particular, that is, my property. Yet Hegel argues that the underlying truth of civil society is universal. This becomes explicit in the state. As the conclusion of Hegel's ethical syllogism, the state draws together in a concrete way the felt unity of the family and the economic differentiation of civil society. The state Hegel means is a constitutional monarchy where the constitution mediates between the particular interests of citizens and the monarch. The conscious unity of various classes under law signifies an expansion of freedom. This freedom is no longer abstract since it is exercised in political rather than simply economic actions. Citizens find their true selves in political life. A nation-state of this kind is significantly different from the Polish or city-state 
which is the setting of Antigone. Hegel thought that the polis exhibited a harmony of opposite powers which remained separate from each other and unaware of their separation. Once divine and human powers were joined in Jesus Christ, according to Hegel, a true unity of opposites existed. This unity could then be transferred to modern political structures and could affirm a new conception of the value of human beings. One consequence of this heightened self-consciousness is the liberation of the slave class upon which the Poles depended for satisfaction of particular needs. Now the Polis is for us a thing of the past, not to be desired as a utopian vision for our future. The externality of the bond between male and female, human law and divine law, are now apparent. Ethical life of spirit no longer fits within these bounds since spirit has become more self-conscious. The polis continues, however, to have meaning for us as an image of the political origin in a beautiful ethical life. That beauty arises from the articulated harmony of Greek art, religion, and politics. It is this interpenetration of the beautiful and true that gives rise to tragic drama. And so we return to Antigone, a play which must somehow speak to us, who find ourselves in a very different political world. In Hegel's interpretation, the character of Antigone remains the same, still loyal to the gods of the underworld, still made making political life possible for men by her attention to the particular tales of life. How are we to make sense out of her as a complement to man when man has changed? This is the difficult question. Let me summarize the argument. Woman, who is associated with nature in both physical and unreflective senses, is therefore ahistorical. Man is, on the other hand, an historical being associated with self-conscious spirit to his political activity. In the play, Hegel argues, we see the equilibrium between the two disturbed, a collision which shows the rightfulness of both sides and a catastrophe which restores justice. The two sexes remain distinct and are unaware of the distance between them in this harmony. The goal of spirit is to become what it immediately is, to achieve harmony as a result of its own self-conscious activity. Its achievement, rather than a linear progression, can be seen as the closing of a circle. On the level of man and woman, the circle is joined only if there is a movement by each out of him or herself into the other's world. That implies a negation of the righteousness of his or her position and a finding of oneself in the other. If this is to be a mutual discovery and recognition, both man and woman must be able to develop in self-consciousness. The shift in focus from the birth family in the phenomenology to the procreative family in the philosophy of right 
shows that the self-consciousness of man has differentiated itself more completely, while the consciousness of woman has not. Instead of two worlds, private and public, there are now three, private, social, and political. The social world, as well as the political world, are restricted to man. Freedom and self-consciousness are generated in these spheres, which continue to rely on the unconscious support of the feminine. It is clear that there cannot be a public realm without a private foundation, but it is questionable whether a class of people, that is women, must be limited to the private sphere. The case of slaves is significantly different from the case of women, so the extension of freedom to slaves is not a simple analogy to the solu- for a solution to this problem. What is this difference? Slaves can be admitted to be men endowed with rights when a political community has a sufficiently aware self-consciousness. Women can never be admitted to be men, even if they are considered equal persons in the public sphere. This is because they are of a different nature. The fundamental natures of women and men are complementary, Hegel argues, and distinct even when fully developed. Men are self-conscious, while women are simply conscious. The spirit seems far from its goal of achieving self-consciousness in the relations between modern men and women. We, who observe this process of self-conscious spirit struggling to know itself, we who are in the know as philosophers, must ask, is Hegel telling us everything about Antigone? Can she remain still a medium for change without changing? Can she be outside of the dialectical process? Has she become, for us, a thing of the past not to be desired? Our, quest- our answer to these questions has to be no. When we recall the dynamic image of Antigone offered in Hegel's aesthetic interpretation of the play, we notice that she acted quite naturally, that is, unreflectively, to carry out her duty. Antigone was portrayed as a doer who willed her fate. Each of her actions was dialectical. Each began as a negation and ended with positive consequences. In remaining unwed, Antigone denied the possibility of a procreative family of her own. This was, in a simple way, an unfeminine action, for it was anti-generation and ultimately a withdrawal of support for the state. Yet at the same time, her virginity was a service to the state, for she prevented Oedipus's fated blood from continuing to haunt Thebes. Since her loyalty remained with her original family, which vanished into the underworld, Antigone found herself acting positively as an individual in the public arena. I think Antigone was a political being in spite of herself. Her last words were addressed to the leaders of Thebes, reminding them of her royal status and asking them to witness 
the rightness of her cause. Hegel neglected this political speech, which is crucial for an understanding of her character. The speech shows that woman is naturally political, even when her loyalties seem to undermine the stability of the state. I do not claim that her feminine world is canceled by her appearance in public life or taken up by this higher realm. I do claim that feminine nature encompasses more than Hegel allows. Only when we consider Antigone as a dialectical heroine who changes as she changes the world can we continue to hold her as a model for womankind. In conclusion, the polarities between female and male, divine and human law, home and city are eternal ones. The possibilities for collision and thus for drama, as the opposing um, terms deepen in meeting, increase as well. To allow woman to advance in self-consciousness perpetuates the dynamic tension between the sexes and permits mutual recognition. Unfortunately, it magnifies the tension between the demands of private and public life. Hegel's view of woman is unnecessarily limited by defining her only in relation to men. Antigone breaks through this limited view when she acts alone, without her brother or fiancé by her side. She brings hidden divinities to bear on human affairs and causes the spectator to reflect on Hegel's statement, the true is the whole. Like Antigone, Hegel is both guilty and innocent of the crime he inherits. Human being embraces them both. In the end, the two of them might echo Theresius' words. We too have come one road, two of us looking through one pair of eyes. This is the way of walking for the blind.